CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have an awful lot to talk about today, so let me get right to introducing our panel of outstanding journalists who join us on this uh, Thursday edition of our show. On Thursdays, of course, our partner from the AJC is the editor-in-chief of the newspaper, Kevin Riley. Kevin, thanks for being with us today. Bill, I'm really glad to be here, but I thought we were going to do this show from Davos when I first agreed, and uh, we're (laughs) apparently not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yes, that would have been fun. Uh, Greg Bluestein, who is joining us on Thursday rather than Wednesday. And I think initially, Greg, the reason that you wanted to make the switch is because you had hoped you would be in Davos on a Wednesday show. But we're awfully glad that you're here today. Sorry you didn't get the trip to Switzerland. Dunwoody instead of Davos, but it's okay. <laughs> We're also joined by Jill Nolan, who's a uh, reporter right now covering the legislature for uh, the Georgia Recorder. Hi, Jill. Um, Nice to have you with us. So it's been a while. Yeah, thanks for having me back. And I'm happy being in Georgia where it's warmer. Yeah. And another uh, reporter who's covering the Capitol right now is with us, Raul Bali, who is the politics reporter at WABE Radio and also... Uh, the co-host of Gold Dome Scramble, a podcast that you do that weekly, Raul? Absolutely. We uh, we uh, drop it uh, every Friday, and uh, it will not this week be from Davos. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, look, let's start with a pretty grim story. Um, f- the background is, is quite simple. For more than a year now, there have been protests, uh, clashes, some of them, Uh, with some violence, others relatively peaceful between law enforcement and protesters who have been opposed to a planned Atlanta police training center, which is actually located in a southwest corner of DeKalb County. There are a variety of reasons why protests have been ongoing there. Um, The more violent ones have led to uh, unusual charges. Uh, Six people last month were charged with domestic terrorism uh, because of their activities at the site of the proposed police training center. Um, And yesterday, uh, we had an exchange of gunfire between state troopers and at least one protester. A state trooper was shot in the abdomen and wounded. He is um, in stable condition, but the protester who fired at him was shot and killed. And Kevin Riley, as we turn to you to start us off on this conversation, we've just seen that uh, Tyler Estep from uh, your paper has uh, just moved a story that the GBI has charged five more people with domestic terrorism, apparently in response to the activities that led to the shootings yesterday. Kevin? Yeah, let, let's start out, Bill, by acknowledging it's a tragic situation. Someone is dead. A law enforcement officer is, is ser- apparently very seriously hurt. Uh, but I think it's worth um, stepping back and, you know, talking a little bit about how did we end up here? 
Um, it seems strange that we have such a terrible thing happening over an innocuous sounding project, a police and fire training center, right? So, I, I mean, to do that, you kind of have to roll back all the way to the Kasim Reed administration. You, everyone who was following uh, uh, the mayor at the time would, would recall he was always talking about uh, improving and enlarging the police department. He wanted to have 2,000 cops on the street, a goal the city has never been able to achieve. As part of that, there was a growing effort to uh, convince uh, people both politically and in the business community and elsewhere to support the creation of a new training center. The police foundation really got behind that and eventually identified this 300 acres out in DeKalb County that used to be a prison farm that the city owned. And, and, and you know, the, so the land was there, they wanted to do it. Well, the agreement was apparently close to getting done and then we had the George Floyd incident, we had the Rayshard Brooks incident, we had the social justice protests, and the emerging uh, anti-police, defund the police movement. Uh, in reaction to that, you know, over time it came back to, hey, we need to support the police because they're doing a tough job and we need to be aware of them. And then, you know, another part of the community got behind that movement. And, and that's when Mayor Bottoms was finally convinced to greenlight the, uh, the police training center. And it was a surprise uh, to some, and there was an almost immediate reaction against it. And that's where we are now, where there are, uh, these protesters have absolutely dug in and will repeatedly say uh, and do sort of outrageous things, but seem absolutely determined to somehow stop it from happening. And on the other side, the city and others are determined to get it done. Um. Let me, uh, uh, Raul, am I correct that there are different kinds of protests over the site? There are those who are basically anti-cop, um, and, and some of those are the, are the ones who have been more violent in their protests, um, uh, believing that this center is going to militarize, essentially, the police force in Atlanta. But I think there's also some who have environmental concerns, if I got that right, that the land this would go on um, is basically now forest again, and they don't want to see it uh, uh, overrun with new construction. Have I got that right, Raul? Yeah, so you have at least two movements at, uh, that are involved, and you have other protesters, but kind of the, the two main ones are the, the Stop Cop City movement, which is re referring to the site that Kevin's talking about, and then the Defend, uh, I think it's called Defend the Atlanta Forest movement. So those are kind of the two main. So you're right, there's this environmental part um, and then in this movement who just wants to stop um, that training site. So to me, what's what's going to be interesting is, you know, what comes out of the investigation? Uh, is the GBI going to bring a, a separate agency because, you know, into looking into this? Or is the GBI going to, in the end, put together, you know, the investigation report on what happened? Who was, who were the, who were the, the people involved? Those, that's going to be interesting. And, and, Taking it up to the state capitol, I think this is, I mean, you've already heard Governor Kemp talk about it. Um, you know, the brand new Lieutenant Governor Burke Jones talk about it. I think this may be essential if it hasn't already part of that anti-crime agenda up at the state capitol as well. Um, Jill, what's also interesting about this is that the protests have been spread far beyond just the site and Atlanta itself. Um, one of the things that sparked Governor Kemp to get involved um, is the fact 
that a an, an, an anti-police protester uh, in Oregon uh, attacked a Bank of America location there because Bank of America is one of the organizations, I think, that's um, involved in financing the police center. And there have been um, other attacks on uh, people in other parts of the country who are also in one way or another involved in uh, part of the financial structure of the center, Jill. Right. And I, I think I've heard that there's um, there are some planned vigils in other states now to sh- in, a, in a show of solidarity with what's happening here. Um, also, now we have several state agencies that are involved. You've got DNR, you've got you know GBI, as has already been mentioned. You've got the state troopers, obviously. Um, I think today we're going to hear probably more about that because um, the directors of those agencies will be before lawmakers for budget hearings. So we're probably probably going to be asked about that. Um, and, and it sounds like this is um, there's no end in sight yet for the situation uh, that defend the Atlanta Forest Group, which my understanding is mostly um, anonymous. Um, they, they're tweeting that that they're going to reach deep into our hearts for the courage and fortitude to you know required to see that this project is not completed. So, Greg, and this brings Governor Kemp into the picture. Uh, the governor has been very outspoken. Um, he, after the uh, uh, event in Oregon, uh, uh, made it clear. He said, we've already charged six people with domestic terrorism. There will be more arrests. We are going to stop the crime there. So kind of picking up on what Raul is saying, this is sort of tailor-made for an administration that is uh, going to make a big part of its agenda cracking down on what they say is the violence uh, across uh, much of North Georgia, but all in Metro Atlanta. But, but of course, this the, the police uh, training center is a great place to uh, target. Exactly. If there was a main theme to Governor Kemp's re-election campaign, it was the economy. But if there was a, a theme B, it was public safety. And we already know that uh, a big part of his second term agenda is going to be cracking down on violent crime, strengthening, uh, you know, anti anti violence uh, ordinances and measures. And he's tweeted several times, including just yesterday from Davos, um, our resolve, I'm quoting him, our resolve also remains steadfast and strong to see criminals brought to justice uh, in light of this, uh, this, this, this tragic shooting. Um, look, there, there are two different things happening here, as we mentioned. There, there's, there is a traditional form of protests. We've seen protests at the DeKalb DA's office. We've seen protests at City Hall. But we also have seen this more extreme, violent form of protest with Molotov cocktails, rocks, other objects being thrown at police. And now uh, 11 of these, um, uh, we, we believe at least 11 of these protesters have been, and activists have been charged with domestic uh, terrorism charges. Um, we should point out, Kevin, this gets complicated, but but we don't have to go into it and great get into the weeds on it. But the reason protests have taken place in DeKalb County at the DA's office is because there's an exchange of land involved in allowing its DeKalb property uh, or its city of Atlanta property, but it sits in DeKalb County. So DeKalb County has to give final permission and, and issue the permits to allow it to go forward, which is why there have been protests in DeKalb County. And by the way, that permitting has not been finally approved at this point. Right. Uh, you know, as Jill pointed out, I mean, there's just a lot, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot going on here. One thing I feel like I should quickly mention too, is that this, um, 
this effort to build this this uh, facility has been, you know, widely supported, in particular by foundations in Atlanta, including the Cox Foundation, which is the mm-hmm. uh, which is the philanthropic arm of the company uh, I work for, and that owns the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And we like people to know that because it doesn't affect how we cover it, and occasionally people want to criticize us for that. But there are some of the most uh, thoughtful and financially important institutions in town that believe this needs to be done. And then on the other side, you have, you know, as we pointed out here, sort of an anti-police extreme movement. We have um, a less extreme movement. We have an environmental movement. And then we've got two government bureaucracies trying to work it out. And I think that just means it's going to remain complicated and uh, difficult to get done and it remains to be seen just um, how long it will take. All right. We we're going to watch as this continues uh, to unfold. And uh, as Jill, as you point out, it'll be interesting to see with budget hearings underway what the various agencies that could have an involvement in this um, may be asked to uh, comment on in terms of the next steps on getting the police center done. By the way, I should also uh, finally point out that um, the current mayor of Atlantis, we now have gone to the third mayor who's been involved in this. Andre Dickens has said he's going to do everything in his power to protect uh, the people who are doing the preliminary work on that uh, site. He made that comment after the shooting yesterday. So um, we'll continue to follow that story as it moves forward. Um, Jill, I want to uh, ask you, we We've talked on this show for a couple days about Governor Kemp's budget, which he formally unveiled from Davos on Tuesday in remarks that he gave to the legislature from Switzerland. Um, They had the document late late last week, so they've had a chance to study it. It's a big, big budget, lots of money uh, going out. But I think it's interesting, and I'd like to get your take. You wrote a piece for Georgia Recorder about the fact that while there's a lot of money being spent in a lot of different directions, um, and and while it feels like the governor's budget is is optimistic about the future, the state economist says we should be a little cautious because hard financial times are ahead of us. Start us off on that, Jill. Right, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It was it was uh, pretty interesting. He was um, frank with lawmakers. Um, you know, he said these these glowing monthly revenue reports that they're seeing, um, those are about to change 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 tone here here in the next couple of months. Um, even just last month, revenues were still up seven and a half percent over December of 2021, and it's up. Revenues are up for the uh, first half of the fiscal year, uh, 6.5 percent. So, you know, um, lawmakers see that they 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 get the you know the the uh, governor kicks off the budget process, but lawmakers want to leave their mark on the budget too. Um, and then mainly the way that they do that is by shuffling around money since the uh, governor sets the the revenue estimate. Um, but you've got the state economist here who's saying that they they're setting a conservative revenue estimate partly because there there's there's about three billion dollars in capital gains tax that they're that they're not going to see because that's there was sort of a delay and um and then those receipts because in filing the filing season of last year that's when people were paying those capital gains taxes on the good market from the year before and you know as he says we know we're going to get a big shock when those tax returns come in this year and people 
don't pay taxes on those profits they didn't make. So, um, Raul, given the report of the state economist, Jeffrey Dorfman, um, and given the governor's optimistic budget, do we expect that there is going to be any tension between how legislators look at the overall budget with Governor Kemp over whether the legislators need to be a little more careful in spending than the governor's budget seems to suggest he wants to be? Or have I got that wrong? No, that ten- but I think that tension's always there, Bill. You know, that, that there are going to be lawmakers who, especially when it comes, for example, the tax rebate, the the income tax rebate, along with the property tax rebate, you're obviously going to have some lawmakers say you could have used that $2 billion for something else. So there's absolutely that tension. But Jeffrey Dorfman's presentation is always interesting every year. You know, uh, Jill Nolan, Jill pointed out, you know, there's not going to be $3 billion of capital gains coming into Georgia's budget. Like, you know, you saw how the stock market did last year. The other interesting two things that I took from his presentation and the Q&A was what are corporate taxes going to look like this year versus a year ago and the money that comes in to the state budget. That was two and a half billion dollars last year. So, you know, he's laying out the justification of why, you know, lawmakers should be careful with the budget. The other thing, the Q&A portion, so many questions about housing and you know, corporations coming in and buying houses, uh, developers coming in and building single family homes, you know, that are all for rent. A lot of conversation, a lot of questions about that. And the key point that I took away from the state economist, there's not a ton of data in that area. A lot of anecdotal. Well, what is it? But not a ton of data. What's the implication? So tell us what the implication of that is. So let's let's talk about the Rivian plant, for example, um, that's east of here. You know, uh, that area, does it really, does Morgan County and and Western Walton County have enough homes for 7,500 workers to come in that area? And how do you fill that gap? Is it a corporation coming in and building a neighborhood that then all those single family homes can be rented out? What are the implications of that? Or corporations coming in and buying homes in Morgan County, in Jasper County? And then people renting at what you know what do the laws need to change in those areas? That's what's so interesting about this. Same with you know the massive plant down in Bryan County with Hyundai. You know the governor talked about this at Eggs and Issues: workforce housing. Okay, mm-hmm. you know first you've got to find these workers, but then these workers are going to have to have places to live, places to send their school, places to go get groceries. So that's you know that that. And, and lawmakers are trying to really put their hands around this. When you listen to the questions, there's a lot of people still just trying to put their put put their minds around how to handle all this. Yeah, this is one right. of the big challenges for lawmakers for the next decade. Uh, there's many challenges, but this is a big one. When you have all these big mega projects coming in that are creating literally tens of thousands of, mm-hmm. of high-paying jobs, as Raul said, where do these folks live? And, and because many of these jobs are not in Metro Atlanta, uh, they're in they're in less densely populated parts of the state where there is a dearth of housing. And as the AJC's dangerous dwelling project uh, exposed, there's a lot of issues with landlord tenants and uh, and state and local regulations involving housing. And so there's a, there's a lot of housing related issues to be tackled. I think governors 
um, State of the State speech next week, we'll go into a little bit more detail into his vision for more workforce housing. We know that he's a governor who's always talked about local control, but this is an area where uh, he's going to try to corral other Republicans to back his efforts to um, enforce more zoning, uh, uh, state zoning rules uh, to uh, kind of reduce barriers for these new homes to be built because there is a dearth of affordable housing. There's a dearth of housing around these mega projects and there's more projects in the pipeline to come. I mean, the Q cells last week, uh, Rivian, Hyundai, um, you know, SK battery, you name it. All those, all those companies are also fostering this sort of hub of innovation where suppliers come in and other companies come in and the workforce development kicks in. And again, this is going to be a huge challenge for lawmakers because these folks need schools to educate their kids in. They need parks to for their for their families to play in. They need all the infrastructure, roads to drive. All that is going to be a strain on local governments. Um, so you know, with all these jobs, there's good, of course, and there's also uh, a challenge that comes with them. So um, before we leave the budget, uh, Greg, I'm just I, 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 I when I used to cover the state capitol and the budget estimate came out, we used to look uh, very closely at what the percentage of growth the governor had anticipated uh, to, in terms of the, the next fiscal year on which to base his numbers. That doesn't I don't see that in much of the reporting right now is it that it's not looked at in the same way or what growth estimate has the governor made that will justify the spending he wants to do Uh, he's seeing it conservatively uh you know with a with a modest um well at least in some of the estimates modest growth but look i talked to him about this yesterday um because we have more the state has more unobligated money in its history, you know, we always talk about the more than $6 billion surplus, even after some of the plans we've already heard, there's still billions of dollars left in that fund. And we're not quite sure what lawmakers and what the governor want to do with it. We, we know it was a big focus of the 2022 campaign with Stacey Abrams saying this is a chance for generational change. And Governor Kemp saying, whoa, 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 you know, let, let's be measured about this. I asked him about this in an interview um, while he was in Davos yesterday. He said, we need to continue to be fiscally conservative and cautious and not grow government just because we have a lot of reserve money. So he's going to continue to hold the line. I think there's going to be a little bit more money in the reserve fund um, than, uh, you know, than if, of course, is statutorily required. Um, but storm clouds are brewing, right? We all see that. He's he, The governor told me that, um, corporate CEOs are very concerned uh, about the Fed rates, about the inflation, um, and about the prospects of a, of a potential recession. So he's trying to send in the message that yes, you know, there might be some some bad news brewing, but George is going to remain stable. You know, I think that another way to look at this, or if you if we pull back a little bit, you know, Georgia is thriving. Uh, I think Greg's right about storm clouds, nervous executives, interest rates, all that stuff. But really, um, here's, I think, the question for us as voters and citizens in Georgia. We're thriving. We have all this investment. We have the state coffers are overflowing. Are we going to meet the moment? I mean, uh, are we going to be able to create these these homes and parks and the infrastructure that it's going to take to remain a thriving state? Or will our legislature continue to be busy with red meat issues and an endless election cycle? I mean, I really think that you could argue this is Georgia's golden age, and we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to create a state 
that thrives for a long time, or are we going to continue to have, you know, just partisan bickering? And uh, Raul, I want to go you last word before the, the break. I want to go back to the state economist, um, Jeffrey Dorfman, and 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 I find him so interesting. He had this one slide that the U.S. can have a recession and Georgia does, or Georgia can have a recession while state revenues are still rising, and also the reverse: state revenues can fall when there's no, re- I mean, no recession. It's Georgia's not exactly connected to the national economy, and so. There are so many different variables that Georgia has to deal with that other states aren't dealing with. All right. Um, thank you for that, uh, giving us final word for the segment, Ro. Well, we're going to take a break right now and come back with a lot more to talk about on today's Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Jill Nolan of Georgia Recorder, Raul Bali, a politics reporter, WABE, Greg Bluestein, and Kevin Riley of the AJC both join us as well uh, for today's show. I want to make one quick comment that goes back to what we were talking about at the end of our first segment. Uh, and we will get into this more uh, in, in shows in the next week. Um, yesterday, legislative panel, which had an opportunity to take a very close look at how development authorities like those in Morgan County, like those down um, that approved the Hyundai plant, how they give away uh, these enormous tax credits to attract businesses uh, like uh, Rivian, like Hyundai, like Q-Cells. And and there's a lot of controversy, of course, around how big these uh, uh, state giveaways are. But yesterday, uh, it looks like the uh, legislator, the uh, Republicans who control the legislature have made it clear they don't want to go too deeply into that for now. But that's going to continue to be a controversial subject uh, in the foreseeable uh, future. Um, Greg Bluestein, we know sports betting is one of the big issues that a number of members of the legislature have been trying to uh, take action on for a couple of sessions now. It looks like this session, more than ever, there's momentum. And um, former Justice Harold Melton gave the pro sports betting uh, folks a real shot in the arm yesterday. He was asked by, I think, the Atlanta uh, Chamber of Commerce to uh, look at the laws and determine from his point of view whether uh, to establish sports betting in Georgia, you needed a constitutional amendment or not. Melton came back and said, nope, from my reading of the law, it's just like an extension of the lottery. And that's a very big deal for the people who want to pass sports betting. Tell us why. It's a huge deal because it changes the threshold of votes they need to get to secure uh, that passage instead of a two-thirds majority in a referendum. Uh, and now needs just a simple majority of both chambers and the governor's signature. And we already know uh, through reporting last year 
that the governor is uh, receptive and uh, supportive of this idea, which is which is a huge shift again. Um, uh, after Stacey Abrams came out last year and said she supports legalizing casino gambling and sports betting uh, to 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 boost revenues for higher education scholarships and such, uh, Governor Kemp's office said that he too would support legalizing at least just the sports betting part of it. So there is there's new traction, there's new uh, momentum behind this idea. Um, if I were to put a wager on it, I think it would pass this year. We'll see. Um, but at the same time, there is also uh, opponents, and we've seen uh, a, uh, a legal opinion from a couple of years ago saying the opposite. So this is something that lawyers will end up having to hash out. Um, but if it does just need a simple majority, if it does just need to get through, um, then it dramatically changes the calculus for supporters of how they get to that to that number. Yeah, uh, Jill, I'm glad yeah, that Greg and- made that final comment. It, this is not a done deal. Melton is only issuing, offering an opinion, and there are those who disagree with him. <clears throat> yeah, it, it, I mean, it's still, to, if they go this route, it still feels like a gamble um, <laughs> because there's no certainty. It, you know, it could be challenged, you know, so if they want it to be a sure thing, then they would still need to go for that two-thirds majority. Um, another question I have is, where is the new ho- House Speaker on this? Um, he's pr- been pretty tight-lipped about his policy position so far. Today, he'll sit down with reporters um, or kind of ask me anything presser on the uh, the, uh, the uh, session, and I'm sure he'll be asked about this. Raul? It, you know, Jill hinted that, hinted that this, that, you know, how, what political capital do you use on this? Do you use all of it just for sports betting, that small part of it? Or do you go ahead and put sports betting along with horse horse racing, along with casino gambling, and just put all of it on the ballot? You know, that, you know, that's, and, and, and the other question always is, what do you do with all that money? You know, whatever a large or small amount comes from it. And, and to me, that's, that is just as important of a question as anything else. Because if you ask five lawmakers, what do you do with the money that comes from gambling? One's going to say education. One's going to say healthcare. One's going to say I'm completely opposed to gambling. Um, so, you know, what happens with that money and what is actually pushed for? Um, you know, because that we did have that discussion two years, three years ago of could they just do online sports betting under the Georgia lottery? And then there's always a question of what does the Georgia lottery want to do with all of this as well? So I think there's still so many questions. And I would still lean towards it would be very hard to get something done this year and it, with this legislature. Kevin, uh, the uh, conservative religious right in this state does not want any form of gambling legalized, and they will fight this uh, in the same way back in the early 90s when Zell Miller was uh, pushing his uh, um, measure to establish a state lottery through. They fought him hard, and in his re-election campaign, they gave him a big scare uh, because they uh, made it a closer race than many people thought it ought to have been. They're still a force. Right. I mean, the real question is, how big a force are they? Because with sports gambling, you end up having to look pretty hard to find anyone who's against it. Don't forget that even our pro sports teams have gotten together, lobbied, 
and mm-hmm. you know frankly made clear that they feel at a disadvantage that they can't offer this kind of thing in their venues and for their fans because to them it is the new way to engage fans especially uh especially younger fans and um we've seen what happens right i mean uh one way to kill the bill is to attach the horse racing and the casino stuff to it and then it gets complicated raises opposition but i do think that greg's right how many lawyers do you think the religious right will hire if they rush this thing through and say hey the lottery commission can do it and there are some questions about the legality of that and they'll drag it out so i just feel like there's got to be some kind of compromise but but really we're going to wake up and be the last state in the union where you can't gamble on sports if we're not careful greg go go give us a little more on the religious right and their objections and whether you think uh, I'm overestimating their their uh, forcefulness on this issue this session. But to me, there was a watershed moment. I'm going way back in history, 11 years ago, where there was a non-binding referendum question on the Republican primary ballot about legalizing gambling, and it passed. <laughs> and that, to me, was the shocking moment. I remember doing a lot of stories about at the time about what is the power of the religious right in Georgia? Is it is this a sign it's waning? And even uh, you know, leaders of of conservative. Uh, you know, Christian aligned groups um, said it was. You know, this was a sign that they didn't have the clout they used to. It's unclear right now, um, especially you know, because that 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 group has morphed, and now you've got anti-tax groups who are lining in up against this, and and others um, who just see this as um, you know as a as a waste of revenue and don't want any more government I- interaction. Um, and so, it, I'll be curious to see how forceful that those groups um what what sort of role they play in this debate um but you know as kevin said (laughs) there's other southern states including tennessee to our northern border that have legalized sports betting um it's readily available online for anyone who wants to 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 gamble sports betting through other states and so at at some point you just lose out on a pot of revenue that's right there for the taking Raul, let me add an element to this conversation, if I may, and then you are welcome to weigh in. Um, uh, there is, you know, you talk, Raul, about questions about where that money would go, assuming sports betting becomes legal. How, what would the state share of that uh, be used for? And uh, there are those who have said that if it is an extension of lottery, it can help bolster the Hope Scholarship and uh, and assure that there is money for uh, everybody who qualifies uh, to uh, get get the funding they need. What's interesting about that is that even without the sports betting uh, uh, measure uh, uh, having passed or wouldn't put in place yet, Governor Kemp's budget restores full tuition for recipients of HOPE uh, this year, which is the first time that's happened since uh, back in 2011, I think, the legislature created a two-tier system where uh, if you got just the B average, you didn't get full funding. You had to be a high-achieving student. So they've already uh, addressed hope at least for this next fiscal year. Yes, they have. And and you saw a number of Republicans and Democrats really happy about that. And one of them um, uh, being Stacey Evans, who was was, heavily involved in, in uh, working on on different versions of that hope legislation, I think uh, back to the question around the religious right, because especially in the margin on the Georgia House side, 
it really, even on a 50% vote, but definitely a two thirds, it absolutely brings Democrats into play, you know, and Democratic votes are going to be needed, obviously on a two thirds vote, but maybe even on a 50-50 vote, uh, a 50% vote. And so what can Democrats, you know, negotiate or get out of this? Um, you know, to get this passed, you know, because because it is mainly, you know, we have a group of Republicans who want to get this passed. Ra- Raul, while the ball's in your court, I want to start, start with you on, on another uh, matter that's of interest, I think. Uh, the AAPI uh, uh, members of the state legislature have now formed their own caucus. There are 11 of them. Uh, they make up one of the largest groups of AAPI legislatures, uh, legislators in the country, which is interesting because obviously it's still a relatively small group. But they have now come up with their own agenda, which says something about the diversity that we're seeing in the legislature. And you followed them very closely. So just start off and give us just a couple of quick points about what they want to accomplish this session. So, first of all, you know, this is a story I've been following I want to say going back to 2006, you know, there was always this conversation about Asian American voters are going to show up. Asian Americans are growing. And then, you know, they kind of showed up. 2020 was a game changer of seeing that many Asian Americans come out and vote. And then they were, you know, more than large enough for for the margins of some of those races. Some of the issues that, you know, they had a formal rollout earlier this week and some of the things they talked about in state tuition for DACA students who are graduates from Georgia high schools, for example. That was one of the things they brought up. Voter engagement, small business development. Asian Americans you know, are very heavily involved in, in, in small business development. The idea of minority contracting and bringing Asians on board in those programs. And then mental health funding, specifically that there are different challenges within the Asian American community, different stigmas when it comes around uh, mental health and and how does that need to be funded a little different? So those were a couple of things that came up um, and, and that they're going to push for. But yeah, when you mentioned, it, it really is surprising to realize there are more Asian American state lawmakers in Georgia than in California or New York. The only one that's bigger is Hawaii. Kevin, it just goes to uh, uh, this whole big story, which is the extraordinary uh, blossoming of diversity across our state, Kevin. Yeah, it just makes clear that the kinds of things our legislature and our government are, are going to have to consider and think about are are very different. And, and we know the legislature doesn't really come close to reflecting the actual population of Georgia. But uh, as time goes on, it will come closer and these things will become more important. Uh, difficult for leadership to ignore, and there are just going to be many more voices. And as Raul points out, you know, uh, different voting blocks that will be necessary to get almost anything done. So um, I should also point out very quickly that there's also for the first time a Hispanic caucus uh, in the state legislature. Greg Lucene, before we get to a break, I, I want to turn to you. Uh, you, you, and the uh, those of you who write the jolt yesterday reported on the fact that. Senator John Ossoff and Governor Kemp are sort of uh, feuding, that may be too strong a word, but it is something of a feud, over who deserves credit for the Q-Cells acquisition, this enormous new uh, development or expanded development up in North Georgia. Ossoff says it's because 
of the measure that he introduced as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Kemp says it's because of the hard work we did here in the development authorities and the like. And here's my question. There was a time when you could actually have bipartisan support for the other side having been engaged in helping bring a project of this size to the state. We can think of Kasim Reed and Nathan Deal working together on the, on the expansion, on the deepening, for instance, of the port of Savannah. We can't do that anymore, Greg, and it's really troubling. <laughs> At least for now we can. And look, if this, if there is a, and it's way far out, but if there is a 2026 matchup um, between those two men, um, you know, this, this is going to be an issue in it, right? Because you can already tell behind the scenes too, particularly, you can always already tell there's a lot of um, anxiety and anger over who gets credit and who's trying to take the credit. And I saw, I sat down with Senator Ossoff a couple of days ago and I asked him about it. I said, look, you know, the governor's office is, is, is upset. You know, you're seeing some of his allies even write letters to John Ossoff saying he's taking too much credit. Um, and uh, Ossoff told me, Look, there's a lot of credit to go around. It's a big project, $2.5 billion. But he said, without those provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that benefits solar power industry, this would not have happened. Um, Jill, I, it just tells us about the tribalism, about the depth of the partisan divide that nobody wants to blink in sharing credit uh, for something like this. Right. And even uh, putting aside the partisanship, uh, piece of this. I, it was interesting to see um, Senator Ossoff and Senator Warnock both rush to take credit for it in a way that was almost kind of confusing. Uh, they, you yeah. know, Warnock was a co-sponsor on Ossoff's bill, but that wasn't very clear in the in the immediate rush to, to take credit. <laughs> um. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and uh, we'll be back. We've got a couple more stories I'm really eager to ask the panel about. You're listening to Political Rewind. Quick program note. Tomorrow we're going to turn our attention to the state of public health uh, with some uh, really outstanding uh, uh, doctors and professors of public health. Uh, uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio will be back with us. We haven't had Carlos on for quite some time. Uh, Rodney Lynn, the dean of the School of Public Health at Georgia State University, and Amber Schmidke, who does the data crunching on where we stand with COVID. So we're going to talk about COVID uh, and where we stand with this uh, virus right now, which is more prolific than ever, but isn't quite as severe. What do we need to do to protect ourselves? But we also are going to look at other public health issues, including the disparities in health care that have been exposed uh, by the virus and more. So I hope you'll join us for a terrific, con what I hope is going to be a terrific conversation on that subject. Um, all right. I want to ask you all, because the new speaker of the Georgia House is going to have his first news conference today, and I assume at least two, maybe all three of you uh, uh, will be there, uh, Jill, Raul, and Greg. Uh, do you want to give us a preview of what you are hoping to hear most? Just very kind of a quick headline from you. Uh, Jill, do you want to tell us what you hope you're going to hear about today? Or do you want to, you want to keep it secret so Burns can't anticipate your question? 
<laughs> well, it'll all be out there in a few hours. So, <laughs> um, I'm really curious to hear what uh, Speaker Burns is um, trying to do with the restructuring of his healthcare committees. That may sound kind of inside baseball-y, but I think there's something in the works there, and I'm interested in hearing more about that. I'm very curious to hear about uh, his interest level in raising the tobacco tax. That was always a non-starter with Ralston. So curious about that. Um, and also just hearing his position. I mean, he's sort of a blank canvas in some ways. Um, I mean, you can look at his track record on on some bills, but as the majority leader, he didn't really carry a lot of legislation. And uh, so you have to kind of look back in his history to see you know, what was important to him in the past. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Raul, give us just a, a quick headline. You know, we're going to ask about a couple of specific issues. I mean, you know, Jill says blank canvas. I want to hear where he stands on Buckhead Cityhood. I want to hear where he, where mm -hmm. he, does he have an appetite? You know, the word that the speaker used to use, is there an appetite for abortion legislation? You know, what's his appetite on gambling legislation? You know, and again, Jill's right. There's a lot of things that, that we want to learn uh, from the speaker now that he is speaker. Greg? Yeah, there's so much we don't know about him. Uh, our colleague at the AJC, Shannon McCaffrey, wrote a great profile that went into his background, into his leadership style, but we still haven't seen that tested and we're going to over the next few months. Um, but as Roll and Jill mentioned, um, we, we need to know where he stands in Puckett Cityhood on the surplus, on cultural issues, religious liberty, abortion, um, on the, the fate of the runoff system here in Georgia, whether he wants to end the system, uh, lengthen early voting, you know, you name it. Um, these are huge decisions. And now he stands as one of the most powerful men in Georgia. And we need to find out where he stands on a lot of these, these, these uh, very important issues. Well, Kevin Riley, you're the editor-in-chief of the AJC. What do you want to hear? Well, of course, since I'm the editor-in-chief, I don't do any real work. But what I can do is uh, <laughs> is uh, maybe up for, uh, for Greg to pass on or any of our staff who are listening, I really like to hear something from the speaker on this um, horrible problem of uh, dangerous apartment complexes that we have highlighted and urged the legislature mm -hmm. to uh, seek, ref you know, legislate reforms on because uh, it's a really important issue. It has implications for the future of our city and state, and it also has implications uh, for all this interest in doing something about crime. Um, all right, well, we will uh, certainly at GPB News be covering that uh, news conference, and you'll be able to hear about it in our newscast later today and on All Things Considered uh, this evening. Uh, before we leave, uh, Greg Bluestein, let me start with you on this. Uh, we spoke, we talked just a little bit yesterday about the um, about Kevin McCarthy's appointments to uh, different committees uh, in the U.S. House, and it included, of course, positions for Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, um, and uh, a number of other uh, far right wing Republicans. Let me just read you, if I may. Uh, the, the lead from uh, a New York Times article that dropped this morning from uh, Annie Carney. They were deeply involved in President Donald J. Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. They have come to the defense of people being prosecuted for participating in the deadly storming of the Capitol. Some have called for violence against their political enemies online, embraced conspiracy theories or associated with white supremacists. 
And she goes on to talk about the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, and Lauren Boebert, and Scott Perry, who are among the most devoted allies of Donald Trump's and were all election deniers, are now on the House Oversight Committee, which points to what we're going to see is just endless investigations of President Biden, his family, and others. Uh, Speak to us about this, Greg. Yeah, look, they also offer us a reminder that even though Donald Trump seems like a diminished force on the campaign trail, seems like a diminished force when we're talking about 2024, he still has a lot of control over the party's loyalist base, uh, over that MAGA uh, core of the Republican Party, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, who struck a deal, it seems, with House uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy in order for her to help bring her not only her support, but also to bring others in her block of voter support over to him. She now has this very coveted seat on House oversight. And as you mentioned, there will be investigation after investigation after investigation um, where Republicans intend to, uh, to to use these investigations to weaken President Joe Biden going into a likely re-election bid. Kevin? Bill, I know we're talking about the House Oversight Committee, but uh, as our Alan Judd points out today in our uh, in the email we send to our subscribers, uh, there is a person who's been uh, appointed to the Homeland Security Committee. Uh, that committee was created in the aftermath of 9-11 to uh, you know, do all that Congress could do to make sure nothing like that would happen again. And this person said, uh, it's odd. There's never any evidence for a plane in the Pentagon. That person is Marjorie Taylor Greene, now a member of that committee. Yeah, we, we played that soundbite on our show yesterday, actually, um, and pointed out the irony of this. I think... Um, Raul, I, I think the irony of or irony is the wrong word. There are people out there who suggest that rewards for those like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a QAnon uh, proponent, who uh, has at times uh, uh, talked about violence against uh, people of the other party, um, that there's no shame right now in elevating them to positions of some power. And, and and you know what the one the, the the person as much as it's interesting with Marjorie Taylor Greene, everything that's happening around Congressman George Santos is even <laughs> is even more interesting because I mean that really is for uh, what your point is no shame I mean every new revelation about him I mean it is going to be interesting to see how he's handled. And what happens with him. But it's also going to be interesting to see what happens with Marjorie Taylor Greene now that she's on these committees. Yeah, um, that, that's going to be really fascinating to watch, uh, going from a very marginalized po- place to now being a person who will wield some power in this new house. All right, we're out of time for uh, today's Political Rewind. I want to thank our panelists for a terrific conversation on lots of different subjects. Jill Nolan, thank you for being with us. Raul Bali, it's a pleasure to have you here. Greg Bluestein, you weren't in Davos, but we're glad you were on Political Rewind today. And of course, Kevin Riley, my partner on the Thursday show, thank you as well. We'll be back with another edition of Political Rewind tomorrow. And as I said, we're going to look at COVID, where we stand, what we need to do to continue trying to protect ourselves and a lot more in the world of public health. I hope you'll join us for that show. Um, In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.